Now, here's a sentiment you won't have heard expressed very often, if at all, publicly. In unequivocal terms, I'm quoting now, I believe that we as Aboriginal people must learn the culture of wealth creation to sustain the wealth of our culture. They're the words of Peter Yu, my guest now, one of the most significant contributors to First Nations communities and to reconciliation for the last 30 years. His thoughts were contained in a powerful lecture delivered in Broome 10 days ago. It emphasises the importance of a yes vote for the voice referendum, but very much as a means to an end, which for him is to, and I'm quoting him, break the shackles of codependency, often motivated by good intentions, but invariably lost in misguided and racist patronage and inequality, delivered by confused and convoluted arrangements between Commonwealth and state governments. Peter Yu is a Yarrawoo man from the Kimberley and WA. He's held too many roles to list now, but they include being the first Aboriginal Welfare District Officer back in the 70s for the West's Department of Community uh, Welfare, and he was the influential Kimberley Land Council's first field officer. Now he's at the ANU, and I might get him to explain what he's building there before going on to his aspirations for First Nations wealth creation. Welcome. Good morning, uh, Geraldine. Nice to talk to you. So you are, in fact, Vice President of the Aboriginal Development Portfolio. Have I got that exact word right? Tell us what uh, First Nations Portfolio at the ANU, um, what's that involve? Yes, uh, it it is the First Nations Portfolio that I've been working um, to try and establish since uh, uh, 2020. I came to Canberra in the midst of COVID, unfortunately, so... We're still at the uh, fledgling stages in terms of trying to consolidate what we do. But fundamentally, it's a new unit within the um, ANU's uh, structure so that um, what we are trying to do is to establish um, work towards um, the national, at one end of the spectrum, national policy engagement, but at the other end, of course, looking at very much the real impact of research impact on directly with working with Aboriginal communities. But in all, in the middle of all of that, of course, is the normal responsibility. Excuse me, of the university dealing with curriculum and um, and um, and students, um, you know, pastoral care and welfare, and um, you know, trying to um, make the ANU the preferred destination for both students um, and professional staff and academics. I see. So you will be, will you be offering classes or you're really to really make it a, a destination point for Indigenous students? Well, we're, we're not a, we're a bit different, I suppose, in the university system, Geraldine. We're, we're not an academic unit per se, even though, of course, we work very closely and need the expertise of academia and, um, you know, across the spectrum of the of the areas that are particularly um useful in regards to trying to progress the nature of um, a greater uh, acknowledgement and participation of Aboriginal uh, interest. Um, and, and I'm particularly, uh, of course, interested in this area of economic reconciliation or, or self-determination. So, you know, I, I came here with the simple view, thinking that um, when the Hawke and Gidding governments, as I say in my delivery in 1984, um, um, introduced all of those reforms, the fiscal and financial and taxation reforms. They they would have had to have um, you know used uh, academics um, through treasury and finance, but also you know maybe ANU, maybe other universities to give them the advice. And I thought, well, you know, quite simplistically, because I'm not an academic, 
if they can do that and change the whole country um, in such a dramatic fashion, surely we can do that in respect to the nature of uh, uh, understanding better and, and changing the systemic nature of the way that uh, relationships operate between the Commonwealth, Commonwealth and the state as it comes towards um, policy and delivery um, in, in trying to advance the cause of Aboriginal interests. Right. And to that end, I mean, that does make sense because in this speech, you develop, you want to develop, you say, this comprehensive First Nations economic empowerment policy position um, and that it, that will involve changing a lot of language. So develop, why, why does this matter so much? Well, I think um, it's probably the inconvenient but unavoidable truth, uh, Geraldine, that the, the current uh, national policy framework of Close to the Gap, which has now been in place for over a decade, um, hasn't really shifted the dial to any great extent where we've seen um, uh, the targeted areas of Close to the Gap. I mean, I think there's a recent uh, Productivity Commission report um, out of the, I think it was 17 targets this year, um, about three or four, uh, very minimally had had. I think any it was real five had actually five. shown some advance. Okay, five, but but how far is that advanced? The question would be. So I mean, you know, it, it's becomingly routine, embarrassingly, where the prime minister of the day of the last two years have stood up in parliament to provide a report on closing the gap, and um, and very little of those targets have been met. And and it's my view that um, as necessary and as good as the intention is, it never will. I, I think that we need certainly the safety net measures that are there to deal with the continuing unacceptable levels of um, uh, inadequate housing and overcrowding. And, um, you know, everybody has heard about the health statistics and the incarceration recidivism levels. But what we haven't really talked about is um, how do we work to give Aboriginal people the ownership of that risk? And the ownership of that risk can only come about by the nature of wealth creation, by our ability to... Um, you know, activate the quite considerable assets we've now been able to obtain over the last, you know, 34 years post the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, post the Mabo Determination and the subsequent Native Title Act. Uh, we have an interest of a roughly 60-plus percent um, in the national land assets and probably close to about 90% across Northern Australia. But the fundamentals are still not right in terms of the question of um, the fungibility of tenure the nature of um, what, what's that word? That's a terrible word. I hate it. What does it mean? <laughs> well, fun, fungibility. It's about uh, the ability to be able to use the asset uh, in a way that, that to transact the asset, to be able to use it uh, to to attract um, you know various types of business uh, right. transactions right. that can generate kind of development. I mean, for instance, uh, most of the, um, you know, the inalienable nature of um, native title as it stands at the moment. The ability to, for instance, an example in um, in Canada where I was recently, um, where there was a treaty settlement, modern-day treaty settlement um, with the uh, British Columbia government, a community called Suwasan, which is about an hour south of Vancouver, They've decided to go a very commercial line. So all of the lands that were subject to the treaty or final settlement with the with the, with the province, uh, they're able to kind of lease that land. So they they have about a ninety nine year lease, um, and they've been able to do that from a commercial 
um, an industrial point of view so that they've generated quite a significant amount of revenue and income, but they're also allowed to do that for non-First Nations people. So, you know, white people basically can come and um, lease it for 99 years and then they can – but they can own the property. They can own the kind of um, – the house, and they can transact that. Here in Australia, we still have, I still live on a reserve in Broome, Geraldine, which, um, you know, is an ancient colonial administration mm-hmm. where I can't, I build a house there. But, but, but you not. could live, I mean, this is such, I mean, oh gosh, when I think I've been reporting this for years, this is the question of individual land title versus communal land title. Uh, and, and I mean, uh, you, you say that you're not going near the idea of changing um, Aboriginal land title, um, but you think it could be better incorporated. Now, what do you mean? Well, there's no reason why, similar to the example I've just given, that we couldn't lease that land but uh, hold it in perpetuity. So the, um, it remains inalienable in the sense that, uh, you know, there's no reason why the government can't uh, develop an inalienable freehold title, it's an, an Aboriginal title, but is able to transact in the wider kind of market in a way that protects the integrity of the Aboriginal title, but at the same time allows um, investment on that property, on that land. Subject and that's not, that you can't, of can't you, sorry to interrupt you, but that's not possible now? No, not really. It's not unless you unless you decide to um, extinguish your native title, um, and not many Aboriginal people want to do that. Um, but in some cases, it will happen. There's no doubt. Right, and and just so that listeners might be intrigued, you could could you not tell me if I'm wrong at any point? You could live outside that particular uh, area, couldn't you? And and live in Broome and buy and sell your house to people. Um, you've made a choice, which I understand, and you're saying that choice is boundaried in a way it, it, to live where you're living, and you should have wider choice. Oh, you can do that as well. There's no doubt about that. And there are many people who actually do that, you know, just gone into the private rental market or acquired their homes uh, like anybody else. There's no doubt about it. But, I mean, I think there's, you know, uh, my affiliation and my attachment as a traditional owner, as a native title holder, I, I choose to do that because mm. of the of the nature of the of my connection uh, to my country and, the, and because of the historical legacies that we're have inherited. I mean, you know, those reserves were created way back uh, in the old days, in the apartheid days, when we were required to be outside of town after six o'clock at night. You know, you weren't allowed to be in town without a permit. Mm. So, I mean, there are those uh, historical issues, but um, more importantly, many people can't afford to buy land because we've been disenfranchised uh, economically. And that's the other thing I think why a lot of people live. Um, because they're able to afford to live on these lands at the moment because uh, they don't have to they don't have the burden because people are very poor I mean we were not involved in the economy from the beginning we were as a say we were completely disenfranchised in respect to that well, in fact, you do. You talk about the vital need of access to capital. You also ne- talk about the importance of building people's capacities. And you 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 say there is a sort of a real uh, the capacity isn't sufficient at the moment. And you talk about the transactional nature, would intrigue me, of quite a lot of the existing interactions and, and the way things are written. So you're really calling for a wholesale shift it seemed to me, in both Indigenous attitudes and in broader community attitudes. Well, you need, you need both. You need both. You need, you need to have the right um, structural 
and institutional um, relationships right between government and Aboriginal peoples, um, you need to um, ensure that there is the... First of all, we, we haven't been part of the economy. Um, we need to understand more about wealth creation. Um, we... I mean, there are some people that are coming up now. We don't have much, many economists or accountants, people like that, who understand how wealth is generated. I think what we uh, what we also need to do is build our capacity. You're right. We need to build our capacity in our corporations. Um, they're not very well funded, and we're coming out of a, a very long period of um, intense political debate and, and basically non-engagement with the way in which these policies are developed. And I think that's why the you know, the, the forthcoming referendum, the voice is so critical in relation to reframing the nature of that relationship. What, what do you mean um, when you talk about owning your own risk? Because Noel Pearson's been talking about this a bit recently too, and I detect a bit of a shift of focus. Well, if you understand, you you you, you quoted me from the delivery in relation to um, unshackling the codependency relationships. So many people don't understand the nature of the government a program and, and program delivery, the way that operates between the Commonwealth and the state. I've been quoted previously as uh, indicating that for every dollar that leaves Canberra, probably 30 cents actually really hits the ground for Aboriginal project. Most of that goes through the state bureaucracy, I mean, um, and, and redistributed to their various programs and their various agencies. So Aboriginal people don't really have any control over that at all. That's And, and that's the kind of misunderstanding that people have about the amount of, you know, billions of dollars of investments that people refer to that go into Aboriginal affairs for projects and the, the wider community is wondering why there isn't, hasn't been any real change over many, many years. And the real the reason there isn't hasn't been any change is we're not involved in that, Geraldine. That, that, that involves government agencies and their public servants that deliver it. I mean, for the hundreds, you know, of people who come up, if you look at the north particularly, the people who come up from down south, whether it's Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, work in the north, are getting subsidised government rental housing, government motor car, they don't have to pay for fuel, um, air conditioning allowances, get a camping allowance every time they have to drive out to remote communities and stuff, you know, probably while at the same time paying off their first or even perhaps second mortgages in, in down south in Perth. So Aboriginal people aren't benefiting from that. But somehow there's a, you know, if you were, if you were a cynic, you'd say somehow uh, the, the government needs us to be um, in that position to allow the continuing nature of the way that the public service operates. You know, and I think that's the big debate that's happening at the moment about the in the voice about the, the the voices capacity to give advice to the executive. I think that we will transform things if we have direct access and ability to negotiate um, directly with uh, the bureaucracy in the manner in which it delivers its programs. All right. uh, Peter, we have to go. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining us, and I really commend uh, people to read your spe- your address. Thanks, Geraldine. Professor Peter Yu, current inaugural Vice President of the First Nations Portfolio at the ANU, and it's the Lulungu Reconciliation Lecture. I think it's on the ANU's website as well as our own. It's really worth reading. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.